It's the World This Week, the World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us from London, Nico Hines, world editor of The Daily Beast. How are things across the channel? Lovely, sunny day, so we're not complaining over here. Good evening. A lovely, sunny day. That's a story. Many thanks, uh, Nico. <laughs> uh, Chiara Piotti is Paris correspondent for Sky TG uh, 24 Television. Welcome. How are you? Very well. Thank you very, very much. Well. Long it's, day. It's a, it's a long day. France 24 senior correspondent Catherine Norris-Trent, can you attest to the fact that it's been a long it's day? It's been a long day for me as well, uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, it's nearly a long over. week. Has uh, it been a long week for Jerusalem correspondent Iris Mockler? How are you? Yeah, I'm good. A, a lovely day and a long week. Both true. <laughs> okay. By the way, you can listen, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. It was the kind of send-off that Donald Trump and Boris Johnson would surely love. A uh, packed house and a packed piazza outside for the state funeral of Silvio Berlusconi. AC Milan supporters chanting their longtime president's name after the death this week at 86 of a businessman, uh, sports president, and Italy's longest serving leader since World War II. Like a soap opera worthy of his media set TV channels, all eyes inside the cathedral on the front row where Il Cavalieri's 33 year old girlfriend, Marta Fascina. Rubbed elbows with his daughter and heiress to his Fininvest media empire, Marina Berlusconi. In this moment of farewell and prayer, what can we say about Silvio Berlusconi? He was a man, a desire for life, a desire for love, for joy. And now we celebrate the mystery of fulfillment. Uh, Chiara Piotto, uh, a state funeral for Silvio Berlusconi. Yeah, and a national day of grief. That was the most complex part to read as journalists, because, I mean, a state funeral is quite... Uh, I'm not going to say it happens all the time with ancient presidents, but it can happen because it's written in the law. While a national day of grief is something that the government decides to to establish or not. And it was never established before for a prime minister. It also, it only happened twice, but it was also all the time for presidents of the republic. As you might know, it's two different roles. It's a much more institutional and a partisan, I would say non-political role, the role of the president of the republic, while the president of the government, the prime minister, is a very political role. So to decide a national day of grief is something very strong. Why? That people Why did they decide this? Because, I guess, it was part of the government. It was part of this ally, the right ally that is currently at the power. So it's his allies that decided to honor him in this way. But not everyone liked it. And putting it. aside the five-star movement, many in the opposition uh, seem to agree with uh, these, this protocol. No, I don't think they did. I mean, in the very first hours after the death of Mr. Berlusconi was communicated, of course, most of his opponents, political opponents of a lifetime, they would speak positively in a way of him, of his career, highlighting what he had been doing in a mediatic uh, Italian word and history more than in the political scenario. But right after that, 
the complexities emerged and also very critical reading about this decision emerged as well. After the funeral, there were long debates in Italy in the last 24, 48 hours about these decisions by the government. And a lot of people started saying, this is not our national day of grief. We don't agree with this decision. We are actually ashamed of this decision by the government. And we could discuss that for hours. Uh, and who, he, he, he uh, was somebody who... Uh, you could say uh, broke uh, a lot of codes uh, when it came uh, to uh, Italian politics, even before he entered politics in 1994. Uh, Silvio Berlusconi, uh, who uh, was the one who won the TV jackpot, uh, Nico Hines, with, uh, when privatization came about. Uh, he uh, was the one who uh, got the first big national network. And uh, that really launched him. Uh, it's quite the familiar tale, this showman uh, who makes the most of it. Yeah, and he really seized that opportunity and he brought razzmatazz and excitement um, and mm. a kind of brand uh, that he reflected himself of, like it was saying in the clip from the funeral, loving life, loving love. Um, he was a larger than life character. He did He did it with the TV channel, which obviously took him into the homes of millions of potential voters. He did it with AC Milan as well, where he transformed the club into arguably the biggest club in the world, which seems crazy now. But, you know, in the 90s, when they were dominating in, in Europe and had the world's best player pretty much every year, it was this huge, glitzy, impressive um, brand, which he... Uh, made himself the front man of and then when he went into politics it only took him six months from launching the party to being in power and i think that's something that a lot of politicians have learned from macron himself you know launch a new party get yourself into power it can be done uh, he was a trailblazer for men who think that they can do everything Catherine Norris-Trent? Well, you know, when I look at those pictures of Berlusconi, whenever I see pictures of Berlusconi, I'm just thrown back to, to one image from, of all places, Tripoli, the Libyan capital, because in, when I started covering it in the last year of the Gaddafi regime, there was this huge mural in Tripoli of Gaddafi and Berlusconi embracing, kind of quite near the town centre. And... I guess that reminds me of two things about his rule. I mean, I don't want to lower the tone, but, you know, the bunga bunga parties that he was notorious for when the information, that the, the details that came out of that, um, very sordid details, uh, him and Gaddafi. And then, of course, the, the deal that they had on migrants and migration and Gaddafi Lost basically them. getting um, money from Europe to stop the flow of migrants to ah. Italy. And I guess that's something we're going to talk about later on. But, you know, it remains very much a, a thing. So... Berlusconi, a very complex character indeed, and, and really had a huge impact, not only on Italy, but across the continent. Across the continent, perhaps across the world. Berlusconi, the original post-Cold War populist, long before Donald mm. Trump dissed Angela Merkel, the Italian leader, famously made the then uh, German chancellor uh, wait for a protocol welcome to a NATO summit in 2009, while the Italian prime minister spoke on the telephone. Uh, and th this was uh, typical Iris Mockler uh, or you, of, uh, of Berlusconi, this kind of, of moment. That kind of moment. And I think a model for the populists who came after him, make sure you own the media, uh, make sure you're an entertainer. 
your policies aren't that important, actually, as long as you cement yourself in power. And I do remember reading something that did amuse me at the time. The part of um, Berlusconi's popularity in Italy was that every Italian man looked at him, um, a balding former tr uh, singer on, a, on ships with a young woman 30 years younger on his arm and thought, that's who I want to be. So there's that aspect of it too, uh, and you just push that and play it forever, until, uh, really literally almost until the end. And when we're watching now this uh, succession-worthy uh, soap opera unfold, his late, last partner, who's uh, uh, the leader of one of the factions inside of his party, Marta Fischina, do the Italians still watch this soap opera or are they bored of it? Well, we'll discover that in the following weeks. Mm -hmm. I mean, today was a very important day for the succession of uh, Berlusconi's heritage because there was this uh, press conference where the actual the current president of the party, which is Antonio Tajani, our uh, minister for foreign affairs, um, explained basically what's going to happen to the party in the next months. So he's going to stay in charge, he's going to be president for some time as in, ad interim, as we say, and then there's going to be a congress and a new uh, leader might be elected. What's, what was interesting in this speech is that he said and said many times that this is going to stay the party of Silvio Berlusconi which doesn't give a lot of future to a party because to have a party completely and entirely dedicated to someone who, as important as it might have been for his electors, is dead, uh, doesn't give much envy of voting it. So I am actually currently wondering what's the real importance of his succession, apart from the economical part of view, uh, point yeah. of view. Uh, that's another story, and we can discuss that. But Marta Fascina wanted to hear it probably an important role in the party. What party is the question? Yeah, Chiara Piotto telling us uh, Italy's not North Korea, so when you die, uh, you're no longer <laughs> the leader. Uh, from uh, business to reality TV to politics, that's also the story of Donald Trump. The next chapter is unwritten after a first ever federal indictment against a former U.S. president, Trump's popularity getting a boost, according to snap polls, among uh, Republican uh, primary voters. Um, Nico Hines, has it sunk in, the seriousness of the charges of stashing top-secret documents in the ballroom, the bedroom, the bathroom? I don't think it's sunk in with him. I don't know about anybody else. We, you know, we had a headline on the Daily Beast this morning that said, Trump still thinks he's getting those boxes back, um, and, <laughs> which goes to some of the kind of legal argument he's been making. And, you know, he, he just, there's, there's, partly it's an unwillingness to grasp, but I think he genuinely doesn't understand the enormity of the situation that he's in, how he is breaking laws and becoming the most notorious US president in history because basically he still thinks he can win. He thinks he's gonna somehow beat these charges or at least if he loses, it'll be in some format that doesn't really harm him. He could certainly, win the, he could certainly win the nomination for uh, uh, the Republican party for president. Right, and this might even help because what his people are saying is that this basically wipes out the rest of the Republican field because in the way Trump keeps spinning it and keeps selling it is 
that Joe Biden has chosen to go head to head against him to try and jail him using his corrupt powers of the um, judicial system. And as far as Trump's concerned, he is now already in a battle against Joe Biden to be the next president of the United States. And the newspapers, the TV, and hardly going to have any space or inclination to cover those other candidates that are trying to oust him from the Republican nomination. And he's probably right. He's going to be in the spotlight once again, and it's going to take one hell of a guy to stop him. Donald Trump can still run for president. Uh, Boris Johnson can uh, run, but no longer hide from Partygate. Uh, the former UK prime minister uh, resigning to uh, avoid a reprimand just days before the parliament's privileges committee officially concluded that he is a liar. Uh, Johnson branding the all-party panel a kangaroo court. Uh, this uh, b uh, that uh, he knew full well uh, about illicit parties at Downing Street while the rest of the nation obeyed COVID lockdown rules. Um, you have, on the one hand, uh, Catherine Norris-Trent, the Republican Party squarely behind Donald Trump, mm -hmm. and you have uh, the conservatives putting distance, I, with a few exceptions. We can name them if you like. Uh, <laughs> Let's not talk about Nadine Doris uh, if we can. Um, uh, <laughs> the, putting its distance uh, between itself and Boris Johnson. Yeah. Why is that? What's, what's, why is Boris Johnson... Boris Johnson was really popular with the Conservative parties when he was seen as an election winner, which he was. He was a formidable campaigner. He had a great jokey image with populist you know, which went down really well uh, with the British public. But now, basically, a lot of the British public are fed up because um, he, they, they, people just knew he was having parties and Number 10 was having parties during a very strict lockdown in the UK. And so the joke is wearing very thin. And also kind of he's not being jokey, fun Boris at the moment. He's being aggressive, Trump-like Boris at the moment. And I don't think that act works as well with him. So, you know, he has got a, some allies in the Conservative Party in Parliament and in the country. You know, there's a lot of local Conservative Party activists who I still think um, admire Boris Johnson, even though they, they know he's flawed. Um, he may try and come back in some form, but it's a bit of a stretch to see how he can do that. I mean, there's all kinds of speculation about will he run in a by-election? Will he wait till after the election and try and come back? I mean, you can never say never with Boris Johnson, but this is, this is a massive blow to his political career. Yeah, the current prime minister taking on his predecessor and re even rejecting some, but not all, nominations of... Uh, uh, done by Johnson uh, as uh, an outgoing prime minister to the House of Lords. When it comes to uh, you know, honours and, and Boris Johnson, look, Bo Boris Johnson asked me to do something that I wasn't prepared to do because I didn't think it was right. Uh, that was to uh, you know, either overrule the HOLAC committee or to make promises with people. Now, I, I wasn't prepared to do that. As I said, I didn't think it was right. And if people don't like that, then tough. I, uh, when I got this job. Cue the applause, Iris Markler. Yeah, it's quite strange, isn't it? Because on that list, let's not forget, the list that did go through to the committee were all the people who helped him do Brexit, all, some of the people who attended Partygate, the youngest woman ever to be appointed to the House of Lords who spent 18 months, you know, in one of his, in one of his committees, like, helping him, his hairdresser and his father. 
And the House of Lords said no to his dad, the committee, sorry, said no to his dad. Most of everybody else has gone through. And now there are calls, especially after this finding that he lied to Parliament and to the committee, actually. Now there are calls to, for Rishi Sunak to withdraw that approval, to not let this list go through uh, and, and to stop um, other things, payments, for example. He was paid uh, by the British public to attend that. So his legal fees have been paid by the British public. Say, no, pay that back now. So there are all those kind of calls asking Rishi Sunak, I think, to do something he's simply not capable of doing because he still has that rump of supporters within the Tory party who uh, support Boris even now. Uh, when you're watching all this, Carapioti, again, we began this, this, this hour talking about the state funeral for Silvio Berlusconi. Are Boris Johnson and Donald Trump in the mold of Berlusconi or are they just very different? Is this something completely different? Well, I really much appreciated the, the final part of her speech because she said, even now, mm -hmm. uh, like we have the impression uh, watching Donald Trump, watching Boris Johnson, watching Berlusconi when he was alive, that there's a limit beyond uh, this like the difference between truth and fake news doesn't mind anymore um, for people. People are nevertheless, whatever costs, ready to support these people because these people were able to speak to them directly or to make them believe that they're speaking to them directly. So this is the common thing between the three men. The fact that they are populists in the sense that they can speak to the people and to give an idea of them that is very different from usually from the real image that the rest of society has, but still to be able to comfort these people that believe in them saying they're against me. They're modifying reality around me because they don't want me to win. They don't want me to protect you uh, while I'm here to stand against any of these aggression, aggressions against me because I really want your... Uh, the best for you. And it's almost something patriarchal. It's something a father would do for his kids. Like, I'm going to protect you against anything. And this really meets with social media and what we communicate on social media nowadays. Like, new politicians can, more than uh, Berlusconi could at this time, because he's older, uh, really use the social media weapon on their side. We see and we saw what Donald Trump could do with social media. He literally founded a new social media for himself, for his followers. Truth. That was only followed by people that already believed in Donald Trump, because no one else would ever go on that platform. But still, there he can convey his truth all the time and make the people that vote for him live in a bubble. And, and, and this is a heritage from Berlusconi who could use television in the same way modern politicians use social media. Yeah. Nicole Hines, just a quick final word on this. Um, the fact that Donald Trump is successful in, in what Chiara just described and Boris Johnson is not, is the difference the handling of COVID or, as Catherine was saying earlier, the fact that Johnson's just not perceived as a winner anymore? No, I think the thing that ties those three men together is the unashamed, brazen use of power to help themselves. And I think the differences in these situations are Berlusconi got his day of mourning, probably partly because his party was still part of the coalition 
government in mm. Italy. Boris, uh, sorry, um, Donald Trump is still has a huge amount of power within the Republican Party because of their primary system means that the crazed grassroots Trump fans can basically swing the choice of any politician in America for the Republican Party. Boris Johnson, on the other hand, doesn't really have a power base. Because of the way British politics is set up, there is no primary that can elect people whoever Boris Johnson chooses in each um, constituency. As a result, he doesn't really have very many backers. No, none of the MPs like him. There's no gra kind of grassroots swelling that can put him back in power. He's a man who loved to use his unalloyed power, shutting down Parliament, forcing through Brexit. And suddenly, when the power's taken away, the chips fall and there's nothing left of him. Well, well, we'll see how it unfolds in the coming weeks, because that saga is not over as to what happens to him now. No quick win in Ukraine's counteroffensive, but it's definitely on. Uh, Reuters journalists this Friday filming the newly retaken village of Neskushny. That's in eastern uh, Ukraine in the Donetsk region. Um, this showing some of the evidence of the heavy fighting with Kiev imposing an information blackout and admitting that there's stiff resistance, it's nonetheless clear that it's making a push, as you can see from this map, south towards the Sea of Azov to break that land bridge between Russia and Crimea, Catherine Nordstrand. Yeah, they've got a, an awful long way to go, though, before they get to the Sea of Azov. I mean, there's no doubt that the counteroffensive has started. It started on several fronts. And the one where they seem to be getting through is the one where you just talked about that south of Velika Novosilka. And they've edged forward um, half a dozen, 10 kilometers there. And they're trying to consolidate that ground because they're coming up against very significant Russian counteroffensive. And the Russian lines of defence are um, very formidable. This was to be expected, I suppose, because all the time that Ukraine was trying to hold off Wagner in Bakhmut and all the time those battles were going on, well, the rest of the Russian regular army, what were they doing? They were training up freshly mobilised soldiers. They were digging trenches, spending millions, if not billions of dollars on rubles, on making really formidable triple thick lines of defense sowing minefields mm. they still are by the way so yes ukraine is managing to get through thanks in no small part to the western weapons the training um, they've also formed 12 new brigades and and they've been trained tactically as well so they're more mobile they're more agile but basically what they're trying to do is is extremely difficult they're trying to do a combined arms assault using a hodgepodge of weapons from all over the place some of them nato standard some of them um are Soviet era weapons. They don't have air superiority and they're trying to pierce three at least lines of entrenched defences. So it's extremely difficult going and it is continuing though. And after last week's bursting of the Novokakova Dam in southern Ukraine, floodwaters in Kherson region are receding and uh, revealing the extent of the damage in places like in the Dnipro River island of Afanasivka, uh, where homes and the garlic crop uh, have been uh, washed away. Iris Makler, earlier, uh, our uh, correspondent who's there right now, Gwendoline de Bonneau, uh, reporting that uh, there's been a bit of chaos uh, on the Russian side. As water receded, some uh, Russian soldiers made prisoner because they uh, were found themselves stranded. Uh, what does that tell you? 
I think it tells you that it wasn't all that well planned if it was a Russian um, explosion that set that water off because, in fact, the lower section was the section the Russians were in uh, and there was a suggestion right at the beginning that some Russian soldiers would have actually been killed as well. And there was also the fact that they were stopping, um, they weren't really helping the Ukrainian civilians on their side. So uh, the civilians, they were there to liberate in theory, but they weren't really helping them. So you saw all of that unfolding also. So it is chaotic, both for Russia. I think everything we have seen from the Russian side has been pretty chaotic for this whole war, really. Uh, and it was quite interesting to me to see Prigozhin, the Wagner commander, if you like, in a quiet, relative to what he was saying two days earlier and two days later, a quiet assessment of how the Ukrainians are playing it and saying they're calm and they're competent and they're taking logical steps and they're coming around the top from Zaporizhia. And he had, I think, more positive things to say about the Ukrainians than he does about the Russian military, with whom he seems almost to be heading for a full-scale battle himself. You mentioned the Russians not helping civilians on their side of the front line. This week, Daily Beast reporter Tom Much uh, was there to witness U Ukrainian rescuers venturing into Russian-held territories uh, to get civilians and uh, coming under uh, fire, uh, he, he, he writes, our boat was driving through waterlogged streets when a series of Russian missiles began slamming into the water around us. Nico Hines, tell us more. Well, it's a really fascinating story. Basically, the Ukrainians have used this disaster, um, this huge flooding, to, to actually go in across enemy lines and to rescue these Ukrainians who have been living under Russian occupation for the best part of a year now. Um, because, as we've seen, the way that Putin thinks about people under his control that are potentially being flooded out or um, starved or in some way made to suffer or to die, you know, he basically doesn't care. So they've been left there. Whereas everybody on the other side of the river, on the western side of the river, has been evacuated and they've been given food and shelter and looked after. So the Ukrainians have used this opportunity where basically nobody's looking to um, get themselves disguised They've gone onto small boats and they're crossing into the Russian occupied territory and they're rescuing families and individuals from that fate, which is an immediate fate, but also the fate of living on the wrong side of the occupation line. And they've been able to get out. We don't know how many, but certainly dozens, if not hundreds of people who've been being forced to live under Russian occupation have been snuck out um, into Ukraine-occupied territory where hopefully they will be looked after. And this has been all happening while there is shelling and missiles and uh, gunfire, um, putting those people carrying out these incredibly brave rescue operations at risk. Yeah, and at the same time, uh, there are those coming to talk peace before uh, St. Petersburg on Saturday, the presidents of South Africa, Senegal, Zambia, and the Comoro Islands. In Kiev this Friday, 
uh, hours after they toured the scene of last year's uh, 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 Russian uh, war crimes in the capital suburb of Bucha, Moscow's missiles landing in another district uh, of Kiev that did draw Kara Piotti a, a, a measure of uh, uh, condemnation. South Africa's president saying uh, uh, that this was not good for fostering peace. He got a bit of an earful from Volodymyr Zelensky because he said peace initiatives are fine, but I'm paraphrasing here. It shouldn't be uh, an excuse for freezing the conflict. Russia invaded. Russia has to go. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the situation regarding the negotiations for peace is in a stall. Um, I was reading an analysis this morning on the Corriere della Sera, which is the leading newspaper in Italy, and there was this analyst saying, uh, is it better for the, the conflict at the current time, is it better if there's an explosion, an outburst, maybe even very um, excessive, like the use of nuclear weapons, or is it better if we go on like this for a very long time? Because it seems like this, the situation currently seems as if it wasn't a stall that is going to end for a very long time, and this might lead people to not pay attention to this conflict anymore in a way. Like even international leaders might start to get used to a situation that is not at all um, normal in a way and shouldn't be normal. But I was thinking, watching these images, these very uh, tragic images from the front, uh, we've been seeing them for a year now, over a year now, and we don't have the impression that these negotiation talks are going any further. And we have both sides still repeating the same things, even Putin showing its muscles, um, threatening to use the weapon, the nuclear weapons, while the Americans say they're not going to do that because they don't need it. So he's using it as a threat, obviously. Where does this lead us in this negotiation? Yeah, those African leaders who will be in St. Petersburg uh, on Saturday, uh, where Vladimir Putin's been hosting an annual uh, business and uh, summit, uh, where he poured a special kind of scorn this Friday on his Ukrainian counterpart. In recognition. They say that Zelensky is not Jewish, that he's a disgrace to the Jewish people. Uh, Iris Makler, uh, you and I have discussed in the past how the country where you are, Israel, uh, has played a balancing act for... Uh, reasons of geopolitics, it doesn't want to alienate Moscow. Do remarks like that one move the dial? I don't know if it will move the dial because <clears throat> it's part of the game that Russia has been playing with the Jewish identity of this leader from the start of this war. You'll remember at the beginning, this special operation was against these Nazis, these new Nazis in Ukraine. And then everybody was saying, well, how can they be Nazis? The president is Jewish. He's the grandson of someone who fought the Nazis, the real German Nazis, <clears throat> during the Great Patriotic War, as they called World War II. <clears throat> so it's always part of this backwards and forwards that goes on. This suggestion today from Vladimir Putin is that he's not, I have Jewish friends, I grew up with them, says Putin, and they say that Zelensky's not a real Jew, he's a disgrace to the Jewish people. You know, they also, when, when it suits them, the Russian embassies put out quite anti-Semitic cartoons, have put out anti-Semitic cartoons uh, using Zelensky with very Jewish features, which he doesn't actually have, but very, uh, the, the cartoon-like anti-Semitic features. So I think this is part of the 
propaganda game. And I don't think that is what's going to move the dial here in respect of Israel-Russia uh, relations. All right. The, uh, uh, the Israel-Russia relations for now st- stable. Uh, it's going to be a, a long summer uh, in the Mediterranean. The official death toll hasn't moved since Wednesday in the worst migrant disaster off Greece's waters since 2016. But there's no doubt that it is set to soar from the current figure of 78, the ship which uh, set off from uh, Tripoli. Uh, a fishing trawler overloaded. Uh, it had a crew of nine Egyptians currently being detained and questioned. Uh, one man, a German resident, his name is Kassam Abouzid, rushed to Kalamata, the port there in Greece. He has no news of his wife and brother-in-law, who each paid $4,500 for this crossing. We didn't get approval for my wife's asylum application to Germany, where I work. The application got delayed, and we didn't get approval. Yeah, that ship which uh, set off from Tobruk. Uh, Catherine Nor- Norstrand, your thoughts listening to that, to that man who's waiting for news, and by the way, the search operations have now dwindled to naught. Yeah, well, it's just absolutely appalling. I can't imagine being in his condition, his position, and just an appalling tragedy. And the, the pictures of that, that boat, we were looking at them on your show yesterday, mm. Francois, of the amount of people who were crammed onto it and mm. inside it as well. Perhaps lots of women and children down in the hold there. And this was days ago now in the deepest part of the Mediterranean, I mean, it seems very unlikely there, are, there was going to be anyone found. And it's just such a tragedy because these kind of things, this is one extremely shocking example, but it just keeps repeating itself over and over and over. And there is no solution that any of the European countries or the EU can find at this stage. Um, I've been covering this migrant route through Libya for more than a decade. And just the amount of people who are held in um detention centers, jails, camps out in the desert who are on these boats, who are brought back, who just go through unbelievable horror. And we just have become immune to it, really. And there isn't a solution. Europe just just says it can't accept the numbers of people coming over. There needs to be some kind of consensus on how to stop these boats and how to stop people putting themselves in a position like that. I mean, just on a humanitarian basis, there needs to be some kind of action at a, at a, a global level, I guess. This happened just days, Carapioti, after uh, European nations were celebrating this great big breakthrough when it comes to uh, sharing the burden on uh, asylum policy was seen most notably uh, as a big win for Italy's prime minister. Absolutely. This, this new regulation in Europe that, uh, that is going to Uh, be put in place is definitely seen as a victory from the government in Italy uh, simply because it follows what the government now but the party of Meloni and Salvini have been saying for years in a a more moderated tone if we want because still some some mitigations had to be found between all the EU members Uh, but what they've been saying for a long time is that we need to intervene not only in the welcoming but in the process of the arrivals and also I mean in sharing the burden as you said correctly um, 
I, of course, I think it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that we don't see for the first time. In, even in the last year, in the last months, couple of months, we've seen similar tragedies on Italian shores. Um, even there, we tend to get used to it. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't. Uh, at the same time, I think it's, it's a political issue to be solved. It's not just by welcoming the people that are on our shores that we're going to make the things better. We definitely find, need to find agreements with the original countries and we need to find a better coordination between the European countries. And I think the new pact uh, can go in the right direction in this sense, already establishing a maximum amount of weeks Uh, that are going to be allowed to actually decide on the first um, welcoming decision. The asylum procedure is going to become quicker, which is already a help. It's going to be unified in the European territory. This helps too, to control that everything is under uh, following the, the guidelines, actually. And, yeah, I mean, it might be less less pleasant to discuss, but also the fact that it's not just one country, one original country to manage the situation, but all European countries are forced to take their share could actually help in the benefit of the people that arrive in Europe and even in the benefit of those who cannot stay because there are people that will have to go back to their original countries or to the countries that are in the middle, uh, trespassing countries, I don't know how they're called. Well, even for their fate, I think it's better if the regulamentation in Europe is better done and everyone has his fate cleared up as quick as possible. And we had uh, Nico Hines, the uh, French interior minister in London the last two days. He's been calling on the, the, uh, the British to uh, work more closely with the Europeans, uh, on, exactly on what Kara was talking about, harmonizing uh, policy. But you also had the sense that both... Gérald Damanin and Suella Braverman, his British counterpart, uh, were not viewing this as a pan-European issue necessarily, but as nationals, borders uh, decisions. Yeah, well, it certainly isn't a factor in domestic British politics that these awful tragedies are happening in the Mediterranean. That's not something that people really pay much attention to. The focus here is on the small boats coming across from France to the UK. And that's obviously been a huge point of contention between the two governments. Um, and obviously it's a much smaller scale, but it's essentially the same problem of how do you make sure that these people who are taking risky maneuvers to try and do something in a moment of desperation don't pay the ultimate price. Uh, and I think that the same sorts of solutions need to be put in place in, in, in all of those situations, which doesn't really seem to factor high on any of these governments' agendas of making sure that the people on the boats are actually safe. Let's forget about the asylum and where these people end up living in the end. Surely the urgent need on a day-to-day -day basis is to make sure that not another person drowns. And that is something that can be achieved if there was enough thought and care that went into it. Call it a sign of the times. The back in grace and much courted Saudi crown prince welcomed to the French presidential palace for lunch this Friday. Emmanuel Macron altered his schedule to roll out the red carpet for Mohammed bin Salman. But MBS is not the one grabbing the attention here. Pulling up later at the Elysee Palace in a Tesla and far from the cameras, Elon Musk The billionaire owner of said electric car company, the star attraction at the VivaTech trade conference in Paris. It's the second time in as many months that Macron has hosted Musk, this in a bid to woo him into building a plant here in France. 
Uh, Iris Mockler, when uh, uh, we called you and you gracefully accepted our invitation to join us <laughs> earlier in the week, we thought it would be to talk about Saudi Arabia. Instead, Elon Musk is grabbing the attention again. What does that tell you? As he always does, doesn't he? I think he's got a little bit of that populist brush. In fact, um, many of his, not only the purchase of Twitter, but the way he's used Twitter, the things I read him saying on Twitter, are quite reminiscent of Donald Trump. And while there's no doubt that PayPal was a huge success, I'm reading about Tesla now that it was in the forefront, definitely, because it was in the forefront of electric vehicles. But now that the other real vehicle makers are catching up, that their vehicles are superior. But nevertheless, here he is. He's the one uh, selling the possibility of a Tesla factory in France to Macron, speaking at that seminar for an hour with 4,000 people hanging off his every word. I think he's an amazing salesman, almost more than actually a businessman or maybe entwines the two. I, I could see Catherine Norris Trent wincing slightly because you're the one who drew the short straw and had to go cover <laughs> Mohammed bin Salman at the presidential Which I'm, I'm sure Emmanuel Macron will be thrilled that people are talking more about him uh, meeting with Elon Musk than they are talking about him meeting with MBS because obviously that got a, an extremely poor reception from Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, etc. in rolling out the red carpet for the second time in less than a year for the Saudi Crown Prince. But just one thing I wanted to, to, to draw on with Elon Musk. Macron is, is is desperately trying to get him to make the, create this huge factory in France. Mm -hmm. so there's, there's, Spain's also in the bidding. And he's been working, of course, hard to try and create a more business-friendly environment in France. But I'm just wondering whether Elon Musk's management style would go down well in this country. Because remember in 2022, he threatened to fire workers in SpaceX and Tesla who didn't spend a minimum of 40 hours per week in the office, not working, in the office. Mm -hmm. And of course, here we have the famous 35-hour working week. So I'm not sure his, his hiring and firing manner would go down very well with the French unions, but we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Well, Elon Musk is a hit not just in Paris. Italy's leader welcomed Musk on Thursday. Uh, Giorgio Meloni uh, put out a tweet saying we addressed some crucial issues, innovation, opportunities and risk of artificial intelligence, European market regulations and birth rates. I mean, I know Elon Musk has 10 children. Chiara, but why yeah. were they discussing birth rates? Because as we were saying, he's not just an entrepreneur. He's a, like Elon Musk is a 360 degrees uh, personality nowadays. So he also advoca advocates for the importance of making more babies in the world. And this is somehow linked to his vision of a future world where we're going to colonize other planets. <laughs> so... It's all of a philosophy that he brings to the table. What was very interesting is that he decided to talk about that with our prime minister instead of talking about a Tesla factory in Europe. And this was very deceiving for our government, who had a little hope to actually convince him to invest some money in Italy too. And actually, they understood very, very rapidly while they were discussing birth rates that probably Elon Musk <laughs> is going somewhere else in Europe for that, for real, real matters, and he's going to just think of the Italian babies to be born in the future with us. It's very sad from a business point of view. It's not very impossible to understand at the same time because, I, I mean, France is a way a more prepared country to welcome currently a big uh, international company like Tesla. Nico Hines, your thoughts on the optics of this? 
Well, I just, I wish we had the optics of Macron's face behind the scenes as he's trying to suck up to Elon Musk, but Musk is banging on about some sort of, you know, great white replacement theory or <laughs> some birth kind of theory that he's read about on Twitter. Um, and Macron is having to sort of nod and smile and, and, and go along <laughs> with him. Uh, it must have been extremely awkward behind the scenes. Um, whether or not it's going to help land the factory, I guess we'll have to wait and see. If only we had a fly on the wall. Nico Hines, I want to thank you so much for joining us from London. Iris Mockler in Jerusalem. I want to thank as well uh, Chiara Piotto and uh, Catherine Norris-Trent. Thank you for being with us here in the world this week.